0: All right, we're going to be talking about John chapter 13, verses 6 to 17. Jesus becomes this humble servant, and I want to read the passage to you. You can follow along with your Bible or on your, on your phone app if you have that, or you can just listen. In verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Verse 8, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, just, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. My whole body is what he's saying. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said, Not everyone is clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand... I saw um, a newspaper article about a week or two ago, and it was coming, keying off so, somewhat of the uh, the war in Ukraine. But the, the writer it was an it was an op ed piece, and the writer uh, just rehearsed all these accusations of wars that were supposedly done in the name of Christianity. Now he brought up some legitimate questions, but I think he took a lot of liberties with the facts, you know. And so, I mean, anyone who thinks Hitler was a Christian, it was one of the ones he, I'm like, they, what did they do? They threw away the whole Old Testament, and anything that was remotely Jewish in the New Testament, they cut out. So their Bible was about 40 pages long after Hitler got done with it. So anybody who thinks that, but this is it's kind of the things that, that come up. But in some things, there are some legitimate questions. Because I was reading uh, about three weeks ago, as the war was starting in Ukraine, And the head of the Orthodox Church in Russia said, it is Russia's spiritual duty to invade Ukraine. They are doing the will of God. And it is, he called it, a holy war. And I think, you know, there is an example of something that, this is how people form their opinion of Christianity. They see the worst excesses and they apply it to every person. And uh, a guy that talked about this a little bit recently, he's a guy named Nicholas Kristof. He's an, a writer and a columnist. And, and just a few years ago, he wrote this. He wrote about how Jesus, and because we're on this now, how he wrote about how Jesus knelt and washed the feet of his disciples. And he lamented that what he mainly sees in, of Christianity is people who are angry and who are hateful, but claim to follow him. And what was, nice was, what was nice, good, was that he balanced it. Like he said, but there are people who are doing this. And he cited one, a man that he had actually gone and visited uh, Dr. Stephen Foster is a missionary doctor in Angola. And he has had an amazing career, almost 40 years of building hospitals, of building clinics. About, about 75% of the medical opportunities in Angola are because of this one man building hospitals, building clinics in the name of Jesus Christ. And this whole country, recently he was brought before the president of Angola, who he thought was anti-Christian, and the president said, there's no denying what you've done for my country. What can I do to help you do more? I can't deny what I see. When I see people kneel and wash feet, and serve in love. It is undeniable. It's, I, can't, I can't deny it. And so it hit me. What do people think of me? And because that's a sobering question, I don't want to shoulder it all by myself, so I'm throwing it back on you. What do people think of you? You know, what do, what do people, do they know that you follow Jesus Christ? Do they do they see you get kneel and get dirty for others? Do they see me kneel and get dirty for others? Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples. This is how the early church went viral. One of the early uh, Roman, emperor, well, Julian, he was an, uh, uh, an emperor uh, in about uh, around the mid-300s, early 300s in, uh, in Rome. And this is what he wrote as he dealt with this, problem of Christians. He said, when it, came, "...when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, his priests, then I think the impious Galileans, that is the Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men, all people see that our people lack aid from us." See, he says, he says "...this is the problem with those Christians." It's okay if Christians help other Christians, but they help other people. They help the worshipers of Zeus. They help these people. They help these people. They help these people. And his basic thing, if you get it, he's saying, that's not fair. That's why people are flocking to them instead of to us. And then he said this, it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism. Isn't that great? The first Christians were accused of being atheists. I love that. I love that. We were the atheists in that society. Why? Because we only had one God. We denied all these other gods. And what he's saying there, especially when he says their care for the graves of the dead, this isn't leaving flowers at graves. What he's saying is they collect the bodies, and they take them and they bury them in a grave, in a respectful manner. And they're not even their own people. It's just not fair. And I love he says their pretended holiness. In other words, he says, oh, they look great and they give to people, but we all know it's fake. The people who are getting food and whose relatives are being buried, they don't look at They didn't look at it as fake. This is why Christianity overwhelmed the Roman Empire. And he sees it. He sees this tide coming. And and it's interesting, if you read his whole letter, he starts telling the pagan priests, you need to be more like Christians. You need to set up things so that you can give food to those who are hungry. We need to figure out what to do with orphans. The Christians have got that down, but we don't have that. We need to figure out what to do with widows. You guys need to look more like Christians. And he tells them, you need to act more like them. But he missed something. It's just not an act, and it can't be done over the long term apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to review just a little bit about last week because it's so important how it dovetails into this. I mean, it's part of that passage, and, uh, and I want you to see some of the things that's going on here It it will be better explained when we talk about last week, just a little bit. Last week, I just wanted to remind you that John 13 through 17 now is Jesus. He's training his disciples. It's at the end. He knows it's the end. And so these are his last words to his disciples. He's getting them ready for what's to come. And this is key. He's getting them ready to go out and serve the world. He's teaching them. This is how you change the world. See, we have... 2020 hindsight, we can look back and go, they did change the world. The early Christians, that's where orphanages came from. Rodney Stark talks about this, a historian, the er, er, hospitals as we know them are from Christians. There was nothing quite like that before. There were some things that were somewhat similar, but they weren't the same hospitals as we know them. Multiple things came out of that. How to change the world. Why is this important cuz we need to know how to change the world. So we're going to see something do ra- Jesus do something radical here. He's making a statement. It's breathtaking. It's revolutionary. He's going to ruin the way the world thinks and the way the world judge. And so last week we talked about the motivation. All right, what was his mindset? What was he thinking about? And we saw how Jesus loves even when he's facing a huge pressure not to love. What is that pressure? First, his looming death. His death is coming. He sees that. John emphasizes in the first five verses how this is foremost in Jesus' mind. Think how hard it is to serve, how hard it is to comfort, how hard it is to love when you are in terrible pain and turmoil. It's unbelievably hard. All we tend to do is self-pity in those situations, right? So Jesus, this is this pressure he's facing. The other thing he's facing is he knows what they're about to do. It's mentioned three times in here. He knows what Judas is about to do. He also knows what Peter, that's coming up in just a few verses, he knows what Peter's about to do. He knows that all his disciples are going to run. They're all going to suddenly say, if they'll kill Jesus, they might kill us. Run! There's no let's take a stand for Jesus. There's none of that. He knows they all will hurt him terribly in his weakest moment and he washes their feet. He honors them and humbles himself. When you think about this, this is mind-boggling. It is incredibly hard to love when there's no reciprocation. And so, he loves them. He He delights and he glorifies and he lifts them up. He he gives himself to them. That's the motivation. The foundation last week for the act of serving was we just saw that Jesus is not so great that he couldn't humble himself for us, but he is so great that he gave up his greatness for love. And then we talked about application. Where do we go from there? We're to be peacemakers. At our core, we are to be peacemakers. Jesus is our example of a new kind of greatness. And we are to love people, not engage in cost-benefit relationships. All right. So, as we look at this, now this this week, we're going to see First Peter's objection in verses six through eleven. Okay, this is Jesus is coming to Peter. He's uh, he's going to wash his feet. He's already washed some of the disciples' feet, and Peter asked this rhetorical question: Really, are you going to wash my feet? <laughs> nope right and G- and Jesus tells him in verse 7 he says you don't realize what I'm doing but later you will understand what is Jesus saying there he's saying look you're not quite getting it i understand that and he's saying peter trust me trust me on this this is the right thing and peter immediately says yes lord i trust you wash my feet thank you for serving me right oh no no sorry That's a different version. Verse 8, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Now, you can't see this here because when we translate from Greek to English, oftentimes word placement is very important. And sometimes you have to clean up word placement to make it readable in English. Peter uses here a double negative. It's very common in the Greek, I mean, in the sense that it's accepted. He uses two negatives at the very beginning. No, never. Or one guy, uh, one Greek uh, scholar wrote, it could be, it could be this, uh, the idea of saying never in all eternity, not in a million years, are you going to wash my feet? It's that firm of a statement. He's saying, are you really going to do this shameful act for me? Because it's considered a shameful act for for an adult to do, unless you are the lowest slave or a child. It's shameful." Peter's saying, This is beneath you, Jesus. He cannot fathom the justification for Jesus humiliating himself to this degree. And Jesus understands. He's he's telling him, Look, you're going to understand this later. Trust me on this one. You know, there are times in our lives when we cannot fathom what God is doing, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. And Jesus says, Trust me. Trust me on this one. You will understand someday. Don't know when that is. But you will understand someday. Trust me that good is going to come out of this. Trust me that this is the right thing. And sometimes, let's be honest, we, we react. I react, just like Peter. I can't trust you. Not on this. This shows us how... See we read about foot washing and we go oh wow that's so yeah he gets on his yeah that's such a cool humble thing to do no they're not thinking that they're thinking this is humiliating he's it's humiliating for him and it's kind of humiliating for us that he's doing that one of us should have done it and so he says never in all eternity will you watch this is impossible No good can come out of this. I will not believe it. You will not do this. This gives us insight. This is how demeaning foot washing is because Peter is willing to say no to Jesus right to his face. Right to his face. Now, Peter's been done that before. This is what I love about Peter. I can relate to Peter. He kind of shoots his mouth and then says, Oh, what did I just say? You know, but here, he just can't handle this. And so, Jesus gives him this this really um, kind of a stark rejoinder because remember I missed this last week, but remember when, when you were going to a meal that there was someone was hosting, when you were going to a meal, you would clean up, you would take a bath, some sort of a you would clean yourself and then but then on walking there, dusty roads might be a distance, might be raining if it's raining, the roads now are muddy, so when you get there you're Whatever you're like, clean from the knees up, right? But still, you're filthy down on your feet, and so Jesus says to him, "Wait," he says in verse eight, uh, into verse eight. Jesus answered, "Unless I wash you, you have no part with me." So Jesus lays it out in stark terms, right? He says, "You don't accept this, you're not one of mine." So then Peter's like, oh, my goodness. And he's still thinking literally. He's not getting the picture. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. He's saying, I know how, you know, this is how dinner works. He says, you are clean. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. And then he references Judas again. It's very interesting here because we see again something we mentioned last week. Jesus knows what he's doing and is very purposeful. He's not some misunderstood, misguided religious teacher that got caught up in events that got out of control. He's aware of what's going on and he actually is in charge of what's going on. He could have stopped it at any time. He could have stopped it at any time. And he's again references. Judas. He knows what he's heading for. He knows how horrific it will be. Um, and, and And we know how horrific it is when we go to the Garden of Gethsemane and he asks God for a way out. And then immediately says, but it's your will that I'm following. And so he went through that. He's picturing it here, looking forward to it coming. One of my favorite verses and this is in Hebrew, where it talks about Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, and, and that word there is the word for champion. I love that. He's our champion, like David was the champion of Israel. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, for who, who, for the joy set before him, endured, went through the cross, despising the shame. And, and that literally means he thought nothing of the shame that it brought upon him think of that that Deuteronomy says cursed is the one who hangs on a tree cursed is the one who dies off of, on wood and Jesus bears that curse and when it says despise we think of the English word despise like i really despise you but it's the idea of that he thought the he just thought it was nothing the shame was worth it who for the joy set before him what is that joy It's you. It's me. In some way, and I don't know how this works, but he's God, so he can do these things. In some way, when Jesus hung on the cross and all these sins, he saw me. He saw you, who for the joy in front of his face endured, went through the horrificness of the cross, despised, said, I will take this shame for the sake of the joy that's in my face, and it's you. And so he did that. So, Peter's objection. Now, we have Jesus's question, and this is a penetrating question. Verse 12, he said, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes. He returned to his place, said, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now, that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You should also wash one another's feet. So Jesus asks a question. It's very striking. He says, do you get this? Do you get this, Bob? Do you understand what this means? Think of this. Think of Jesus standing in front of you. His outer clothes are off. He just has these inner garments, just a basic wrapped around his waist. His hands are wet. He's got a dirty towel in his hands. He's on his knees in front of you saying, do you understand? What I'm doing for you? Do you get this? Before I send you out, you must get this. You must wrestle with this. Jesus is painting a picture for us. Uh, John is painting a picture for us, I should say. They're looking intently at Jesus, and they're not totally understanding. But you can imagine what's going through their mind. Who is he? He stills the storm. He calms the sea. He heals. We just saw a lame man walk. He leads a hated foreigner into a right relationship with him. He raised Lazarus from the dead. We watched that happen. And now he's on his knees in front of us doing something that is humiliating. And he says, do you understand what I've done for you? And he says the same thing to us. This is a marvel. This is a wonder. Because what is he saying? He's saying, I will not just become another part of your life. I want it all. I want it all. There are so many voices pulling at us in different directions in our life. And the God of the universe is not willing to be one of those voices. That's not him. He's saying, do you understand? Because if you do, your life will never be the same. And their lives were never the same. Once they understood, their lives were never the same. Because if you don't understand, God just becomes another part of your busy life, like checking emails and looking at texts. And God said, I'm not having that. So this week, let me... Maybe encourage you to remind yourself. Maybe occasionally read this text. It's not a long read. And decide, I'm going to be the kneeling servant in someone's life. Because he says, if I'm your Lord, if I'm your teacher, and I'm willing to do this, how much more should you be willing to? This is the hallmark of a follower of Christ. Willingness to serve even those who hate you. That's who we are. That's what sets us apart. That's why when Julian told his priests, you need to be more like the Christians, they never were. The priesthood in in those various religions in Rome didn't change because of Julian. Because he asked them to do the impossible. He asked them to change their hearts. And you can't do that. Only God can do that. So, we saw Peter's objection... We saw Jesus' question, and now we see Jesus' pattern in verses 15 and 16. He says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's saying, look, I'm your Lord. Here I am on my knees. My hands are dirty. My clothes are off. I got a dirty towel in front of me. Do this. So he says, I set you an example. That word example means a copy. It means a pattern to follow. When you're copying, and and, and back then, even in terms of uh, as they created works of art or sometimes copied things, when you copied something, the copyist took great care. Maybe he's working with metal. He took great care to make sure the copy looked like the original pattern in every way. And Jesus is tying into that thought. He says, I want you to start to look like me that's what I want here. The word, for example, is interestingly, is the very first word in this sentence in the Greek. It emphasizes, example, this is what I have set for you. This, it elevates it. I want you to be that way. It's like seeing a child who looks like their parent. You know, we say he's, chip off the old block, or you're the spitting image. I don't know where, I thought thought about a spitting image. Where did that come from? You know, where did that come into our language? But it's this idea, you look so much alike. I see him in you. I see her in you. And we're to become that with Jesus. People say, I see Jesus in you. Maybe they don't see it exactly like that. But you hear it sometimes. As you do things like that, occasionally you'll hear somebody say, Why did you do that? Or how were you able to react that way in that situation? That's amazing. What are they saying? They're saying, I think I see Jesus in you. I think I see Jesus in you. And so, when we look at this, I think, what does this kind of serving look like? Practically speaking. First, a f- foot-washing love will confront when it is needed. Foot-washing love, that kind of humble love, it will confront when it's needed. It's not blanket tolerance. It doesn't, ma- it doesn't mean you never make a person feel uncomfortable. That's not true. It's interesting, um, I have this book, it's by a guy named Christian Smith, it's called Soul Searching. He's a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame, and he did this long study with a, with a group of uh, some other professors and graduate students, a long study on emerging adults and kind of what they think and what they believe, you know, we hear so much about it. And, and he said, so he did through thousands and thousands of interviews, wanted to know from their own mouth what they think, not, to, what, do, not what do other adults think they think, right? I think about, maybe understand that. And so um, they said, you you see this popular approach that's often not just in their age group, just accept people for who they are. He said, oftentimes they'll say, who am I to judge them? I could never confront them because who's to say that it's not wrong for them, even though it may be wrong for me? And he he says, what happens is he tied this in. He says, that's shorthand for something that comes up all the time. Whatever. He says, you take that word, Whatever, and that encompasses those, those ideas. And how you live your life, eh, whatever. How you live, oh, whatever. And it kind of sounds very accepting, right? Eh, whatever, if it works for you. Like, I accept you for who you are. But interestingly, he writes, it means this. He says, when you dig down and explore and ask further questions, he says, they often confess that it means I don't need to take you seriously. Whatever. In the data as it comes out, he said it means I don't question what you're doing because I don't care what you're doing. I will not challenge what you're doing because I don't care enough to learn who you are. That's what it means. He says, in these this group of people who are look very accepting, but it tends to be indifference. I just don't care. And see, here we go. That's not the loving response. Because the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference, it's I don't care. Even with hate, at least there's some engagement. But it's just I don't care. Foot foot washing gets down and it gets dirty in the life of another person. You know, you think about what... These young people, and, and it's, I sound like an old guy here railing against young people. It's, it's, it's throughout our society, all right? I've heard old people say whatever also. But you think about it. If you're raising a child, whether you're a parent or not, you can see the truth of this. If you're raising a child and you just decided, who am I to judge, right? Let them live how they want. If it's right for them, I will not judge them. Let them decide what's best for them. Okay, that would be called child abuse. That would be the worst thing you could do for a child. It's the worst thing you can do for an adult. We have to be willing to speak the truth in love. So first of all, foot washing. Foot washing love will confront when needed. Foot washing love is an act of the will in spite of your emotions. This is very hard for us to do. It is an act of the will in spite of your emotions. It's not about how you feel about that person or the situation or the service, maybe, that God has called you to do. It's not about how you feel about that. Because let's face it, dirty feet are yucky, right? That could be a nasty job. Let's just take that back off. I don't want everybody looking at the feet. It's not attractive. It's an act of the will. It's me saying, you saying, I have decided to love. Now, love is not totally apart from emotion, but when you act in love, your emotions tend to follow. It's like the more you insult someone, the more you feel like you dislike them, even hate them, the more you will dislike them and hate them. And the less human you become. But the more you decide to love someone in spite of what they are or what they've done, you become more human. You become more what you were made to be. So foot washing, love will confront when needed. Foot washing love is an act of the will in spite of your emotions. Foot washing love serves and refrains from judgment. Now, I know you're going to go, wait, that conflicts with number one. They both can work together. Let me explain. Jesus washed all their feet, even Judas's. He didn't say, uh, <laughs> no, I know what you're gonna do. I know who you are. I know what's in your heart and in your mind. I know what you're about to do to me. I am not washing your feet. He didn't do that. <clears throat> so we see here then, Foot-washing service is not about justice here. It's not about justice. Jesus looks beyond who they are and what they've done and what they will do. He could have stopped with every one of them. He knew what all of them were going to do. He went back and forth with Peter. You know, Peter's like, no, you will never wash my feet. Jesus could have said, you know, you're going to deny me, so you're right. I'm not washing your feet. Like, yeah. That's, I, that's almost sacrilegious. I shouldn't do that. That's what I would do, though. That's what I would do. I say, you punk. And the problem is, I would say to Peter, you punk, you remind me of me, because he reminds me of me. And Jesus washes all their feet. He's not, he's not deciding who deserves their feet to be washed. He's going way past that. He's washing all their feet. Just like he will die for the sins of the world. He's not making a judgment on this. You know, Eugene Peterson, <clears throat> he's a great author. I love him. He says, people say love is blind, and, that's, and, and he says, really, love is the exact opposite of blind. Love allows us to see clearly for the first time. Love allows us to see all the bad and still act in love. That's what love does. Indifference is blind to the possibilities in each of us. Indifference is blind to the beauty that's beneath the dirt. Love enables us to see what has been there all along, but was overlooked in haste and indifference. Um, I mentioned Rodney Stark, his, uh, his book, The Triumph of Christianity. He talked about how one of the hallmarks of the Christian community was their mercy. And mercy was considered a character flaw in Rome to the elites. It was, it was something they didn't necessarily desire, and that the Christians expressed it so concretely and so often was considered, that's why we're not one of them. Christian helped, Christians helped those who the world said did not deserve help. And it went viral. In the early church, they loved people. They loved all kinds of people. They weren't superhuman, they were people like us. They just decided to love recklessly. They saw people who were hurting. They saw people who were lonely. They saw people who were ignored. And they said, We must do something. We must. The love of Christ compels us. And so they loved them. And look, it won't be easy for us to love that way. It wasn't easy for them to love that way. I mean, some of them lost their lives because of it. Some of them lost their homes, their family, their jobs because they decided to love. And in reality, let's face it, often the people who are being ignored and that a lot of people are indifferent to Is happening to them because they're hard to get along with. When someone is hard to get along with, the easy way out is to ignore them or to be indifferent to them. But they didn't do that. So maybe this morning, you know, just sitting there thinking, think of someone you go, I need to love. Someone who may be hard to love in your life. Someone you may not want to love. And then figure out, how can I love them? What can I do? What are the first steps? What are the first steps to showing them and serving them and kneeling in front of them and washing their feet? And it's hard. We know that. I mean, there's, there's, there's no sugar in this. It's hard, but that's how they change the world. And that's why, at the end of verse 16... He says, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. We are the sent ones. Jesus is saying, I send you. I send you to go out in the world and to do this, to make this change, to change people's lives by loving them even when it's hard and not convenient. So, Peter's objection, Jesus' question, Jesus' pattern, and now Jesus' promise. He doesn't just leave us hanging. He says, look, he says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He said this blessedness, this happiness, this contentment, this fulfillment, you know, and and again, think of this. Jesus is talking to them. He just just had all his clothes off except just the basic undergarments. He just got on his knees. His hands are wet. The towel is dirty. He's washing filthy feet, and he's saying, I'm sending you. Because this is what power looks like. This is what authority looks like. You want power? You want authority? Get on your knees. Now, I got to tell you, when we see people, if you think about it, when you see people who are like that, we are drawn to those kind of people. Because they seem to have tapped into something that our heart cries for, that our heart desperately wants and needs. I knew a guy years and years ago, and he it just he just exuded it. He had, he had, um, I remember one time we were talking after church, and he had this big trailer, and somebody came up to him and said, hey, man, thanks for letting us borrow your trailer and, and, and going on vacation with it. We couldn't have gone on vacation without it. And, and I was like, that is so cool you did that. He goes, do you want to borrow it? And I'm like, um, I've got uh, five kids in a Dodge minivan. It won't pull that giant trailer. He goes, take my truck. And it was just like, it didn't it was so instant. And I just thought, you're not a normal person. You're not a normal person. Now I, had, I have a friend who told me one time, never borrow something you can't afford to buy. <laughs> and so I saw that trailer, and I just thought, oh, all right, no, thank you though, thank you though. But I, <laughs> knowing me, yeah. So. Our hearts are drawn to people who are like that. People people around us, they're looking for something different in this world, not some cheap imitation dressed up in religious talk. And if we do church and we do life the way the world does it, no one wants it. we got nothing to offer. Our lives should reflect Jesus. If you just live for yourself, your heart will harden, but if you live for others, you will be blessed, Jesus promises. There's two ways to live. I thought of a perfect illustration of there's two ways to live. A Christmas Carol and Scrooge. Dickens wrote a parable simply about there's two ways to live. This is, and I know I'm hammering this almost every week, this is the Zoe life Jesus is talking about. This is the life he's talking about. And life is used in the New Testament. I know we always have new people. Somebody new may be watching online. There's two words that can be used, bios and zoe. You guys could say this for me if you want to. There's bios and zoe, right? And bios is simply existing. It's eating and drinking and living just fundamental biological life. If you had eternal bios, that's hell. That's what hell is. It's just existing eternally with nothing. Then the Greek uses the word zoe. And zoe is the word for, the, for a life that is fulfilling and meaningful. And Jesus tacks on the front of that all, so many times, eternal life. In other words, it's a supernatural zoe. And this is what Jesus is talking about right here as he's talking to the disciples. This is eternal life. This is zoe, served and you will be astounded at what happens. And they were. And they were. So he says, do you understand what I've done for you? He didn't say whatever. He didn't say don't care. Right? He he didn't give in to indifference. He humbled himself, and God exalted him, and we are offered the same. Humbly love and serve. And God says, and there will be blessing and exaltation. I will honor you in your service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word convicts us. Your word shakes us. It confronts us. Your word comforts us. We have a Savior who loves us deeply. And now, Lord, as we go out, as we leave this place, help us, give us the courage, the courage to live in a way that reflects Jesus to our friends, to our neighbors, to our families, to our co-workers, to the people around us. So that even sometimes they may speak bad of us simply because we love and serve. And Lord, if that's what happens, we are willing. Because we know you see it all. You walk with us every step of the way. And so, Father, we thank you for that assurance. We pray now. Help us to think possibly this week. Help us to find one person, one person to love. Help us to begin to change the world one person at a time. In Jesus' name, amen.